Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. How should we understand identity? What sort of politics are needed to address various forms of oppression and marginalization? Are knowledge and practice untainted by ideological obfuscation possible? These questions and many more are what animate my guest today, Imani Banerjee, here to discuss her book, The Ideological Condition, Selected Essays on History, Race, and Gender, clocking in at close to 800 pages and spanning several decades of research and writing, this volume brings a number of themes together. Following Marx, Banerjee argues that social inquiry and critique must start with everyday life as it is lived, with the various social formations and relations generating various forms of consciousness. From this rather humble starting point, Banerjee is poised to enter into a productive dialogue with various other thinkers, particularly Lukács, Gramsci, and Dorothy Smith. She is also able to tackle questions of education, economics, race, gender, narrative, history, colonialism, and emancipation. Tying these threads together is no easy task, but in working her way through an assortment of different themes and thinkers, Banerjee helps clarify the ways in which disparate elements of reality are tied to one another and cannot be understood in isolation. Readers will find this book to be overflowing with insights and endlessly clarifying in the struggle to understand who we are, what we know, and what we can do. Shortlisted for the Isaac Deutscher Memorial Prize, the book was published as part of the Historical Materialism book series, and was published first by Brill and then by Haymarket. Imani Banerjee is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at York University. Her many publications include Demography and Democracy, Essays on Nationalism, Gender, and Ideology, Inventing Subjects, Studies in Hegemony, Patriarchy, and Colonialism, The Dark Side of the Nation, Essays in Multiculturalism, Nationalism, and Racism, and Thinking Through, Essays on Feminism, Marxism, and Anti-Racism. Imani Banerjee, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, and uh, I'm very glad to be here, and I was looking forward to coming to this for today, yeah. Yeah, uh, very excited to have you here. I always like to kick things off by having guests introduce themselves. Could you maybe tell listeners a bit about your work and research and what your main uh, research interests are that you find yourself writing about? Um, I have been, uh, I'm a retired faculty, a professor emeritus at York University in Department of Sociology. And I have also worked uh, quite a bit in India, part of the time in the women's studies programs in the universities, setting them up, and also in the development studies, uh, Institute of Development Study in Calcutta. Uh, my re- I've been teaching for a very long time, but my uh, interest has been more or less uh, connected to the similar kind of things that I'm working on now, which is I started as a scholar in Marxism and, uh, you know, here uh, mainly, but in India I also did uh, Marxist literary theory and I taught in the university there for a few years. And my background then was in English and comparative literature. 
And in Canada, I shifted to sociology after a few years, and I've been teaching at York since 1974. And then in those days, the issues that were of great interest, and they were not academic in those times, was about um, issues around race and, uh, uh, you know, black movements, civil rights movements, Vietnam, and at the same time, women's movement was also rising. So I came to Canada in 1969, right in the middle of very exciting changes taking place, but they were not inside the university. The university that I took a degree in, University of Toronto, or where I taught, we didn't have women's studies, we didn't have Marxist studies, we didn't even have Afro-American or, you know, black studies, nothing like that. So it came from social movements and popular various kinds of political uprisings and uh, took over our imagination and our enthusiasm. And from the 70s onwards, the anti-imperialist movements, uh, starting with the fall of the killing of Allende, in Chile in 1973, the first September 11th that happened in 1973. Uh, we, I have been very connected with doing what would be called one time third world studies, but I would generally call an anti-imperialist studies with a Marxist orientation. So um, these subjects eventually became part of the university and now we behave as though we've always had them. But we forget that this all came from social movements and political struggles. And we were as part of that and tried to bring it to the university. So that's really the mainly the, the background to what I've been doing. But ever since I've come here, in Toronto in 69, most of the years I've spent part of the year in India. And there I was very interested in helping to set up a women's studies program and actually also talking about Marxist sociology, particularly in relation to caste, race, gender, and development and studies of modernity uh, and distinguishing it from modernization, which was the, uh, you know, the so-called uh, development theorists of, um, you know, main tool from MIT, Harvard, and so on, which Indian Planning Commission and Indian econ economists were very interested in. But we were more interested in political economy or critique of political economy. And from that point of view, um, my background is partially development studies as well. And my contact with India continued. I shifted from the English department at UFT uh, from a PhD ABD status and stayed dropped out for a while. And then I joined the um, Inter Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and worked with Dorothy Smith a very, now a very famous, very well-known Marxist feminist sociologist. So that being the case, I tried to bring into my compass a study of India, a study of literature or culture, 
as well as class, gender, caste, race, colonialism, and so on. So it's been an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary enterprise, and uh, I've carried on with it to, to this time. But depending on what time of history and society or politics I was present in, I tried to, in that sense, uh, veer my research in that direction. I've never really done academic work for its own sake. So when I started doing the work on uh, my first book, came out, out of my thesis, The Mirror of Class, this collection, The Ideological Conditions, has actually come in a way it's chronological. Uh, it's last parts are in a way the first parts of my work. And I tried to talk about representation of class in political theater uh, in the Indian People's Theater Association. And there, and at that time was quite influenced by um, two, many people, but two main figures. One is Williams, Raymond Williams, and the other was um, uh, Georg Lukash, whose history and class consciousness, as well as his book on historical novel, his theory, books on critical uh, realism, and so on, which literary people always used at that time, was very important. But it broadened me out into thinking more about literature. It's in terms of history, sociology, and class as a material factor in life and cultural too. And I suppose from then on, with my connection with the Indian Communist Party Marxist, I've been interested in trying to put together uh, cultural a critique, if you like, or analysis with a critique of uh, economy. Uh, without kind of saying that uh, all Marx is and class is, is economic, um, and, or all class is, is cultural, and there's a working class cultural, so, and so on. I've tried hard to put it together and talk about an integrated kind of analysis that does not actually uh, take an either-or position on these issues. And I think there's been a long tradition um, of dividing them, and particularly um, economists, Marxian economists, but political economists, neglecting culture to a large extent. And I thought that whereas with culture it's not enough, no one can do emancipatory work without it. And so that is where I come from. I have written a few books on these issues, and in the last few decades, with the rise of Hindu fundamentalism, uh, right-wing Hindu extremism in India, and it's, it's political, coming to power politically, uh, it became imperative that we all got interested in trying to understand the role of religion, nationalism, cultural nationalism, and so on in understanding a kind of a form I would call not just authoritarian, but fascist. And so this has been the main enterprise. In the last few years, I've been preparing a book which is going to be published soon on Rabindranath Tagore, 
it's on uh, the whole problematic of decolonization and uh, how in spite of his being an anti-nationalist, he proposed decolonization for India. How is it possible to be decolonial? And in this, I brought in my interest in Fanon's notion of decolonization and tried to show how somebody who lived between 1861 to 1941 and was part of India's freedom struggle uh, articulated the project of decolonization in a certain way that I thought is very important now when very small blocks of political identities are working against each other to introduce a kind of an overall notion of revolutionary humanism, if you like, or a resistant humanism. But I have brought back into my language and analysis an interest in humanism as well. So my last work has been on Marx and Tagore uh, in a comparative analysis on on um, on alienation and not so much class struggle because Tagore didn't talk about it, but he did talk about alienation and political um, nationalism and narrowness. So that's about all I can tell you. Yeah, you've got a lot uh, going on in your background. We'll unpack some of what uh, you were just talking about in more detail as we go on. Um, to kick things off with discussing this book, um, I think it would be good to start with uh, a term many people are familiar with by now, intersectionality, which in this day is often brought up as a description of or uh, a category or f- important part of emancipatory social movements. But a theme running through much of your work here is the limits of how it is often brought up. You write, quote, speaking of experience, both non-white and white people living in Canada or the West know that this social experience is not, as lived, a matter of intersectionality. Their sense of being in the world, textured through myriad social relations and cultural forms, is lived or felt or perceived as being all together and all at once, end quote. Can you explain and give us an introductory sense of the limitations of intersectionality as is often brought up in contemporary social inquiry and what sort of methodological orientation is needed to attend to the various dynamics of oppressed and marginalized experience? Uh, Very good question, uh, but again, very profound, and I really cannot do justice to it, you know, obviously. But I will begin by saying that I can understand the popularity of the concept because it rose at a time when there was a crisis happening, particularly both legally and within women's movement, when uh, there was very little recourse to bringing together the actual lived experience of people, uh, you know, in terms of uh, being women, being women of color, as we used to say then, or black women, and as well as being marginalized or working class or poor. And and Kimberly Crenshaw, when she brought it up, actually did it for a case, court case, as you know. And since there are very few laws pertaining to these social relations that we daily live but don't have many actual laws for, 
um, it became a popular notion and it has got its own meaningful, pragmatic use of it. I personally would not neglect it as a term or look down upon it, or but I think uh, to stay with it as an analysis is a bit of a problem because it's really uh, more, uh, yeah, interest, you know, it's more uh, a heuristic device, let's put it this way, which puts these notion, you know, social relations, their experiences in their subjective kind of uh, connotation, but has very, uh, doesn't tell you why and where they particularly arise from. It's much. So I would say that um, uh, the difficulty for me is to talk about um, intersectionality as an actual experience of people. Because when I am present in front of you, you do not divide me up into uh, being a woman, being a woman of color, being a certain age, etc. You see me as a whole and I respond as a whole. And this sort of experiential uh, being in the world always at once is very hard to put it even in words, what that is, how to talk about it even in a certain kind of analytic fashion. So we can approximate but through analysis, but we cannot reproduce that experiential part of it, which is always already there for us in any given society. And so uh, trouble is, as far as I can see, is that that um, the nature of this concept makes us aggregative, uh, you know, something we don't experience. That is, it adds class, race, gender, but could do many other things as well uh, because uh, of that um, uh, because they just have to be added on, but do not show themselves in a formative, constitutive relation with each other. And uh, what we then have is this race, gender, and class as a set of objective relations. They're out there. And then there's me in here. And how these objective and subjective relations and experiences come into being has not been really sufficiently understood or even admitted, uh, leading us, therefore, to think sectionally on class by some Marxists, on gender by some feminists, on race by others. And though a kind of a, uh, lip service is rendered to them in talking about intersectionality, actually the entry point of it is never a kind of an intersectional or interconstitutive entry point. So I think that subject's experience here has been substituted by these objective relations that we face in developed capitalism and particularly in North America in the context of colonialism, slavery, and a colonialist, imperialist capitalism. So um, then here we have the danger of falling into a subject versus object in a dualistic kind of thinking. 
Out there in the world, the world is objectively structured by gender, race, class relations. Subjectively, I am present in it, and I could be somewhere else going through other relations. But we don't really have here uh, the mediating midpoint that is a copula that transformatively connects the subject and the object, experience and the world in that sense. So uh, intersectionality then becomes a descriptive provisional attempt, not an analytical one. And experiential life then is really kind of at a distance from it, though collectively it draws us all in. But the idea of personal is the political, which was women's movement, or from Marx, the notion of social self-emancipation as heart of social emancipation, the subject's world and change cannot be adequately provided for by this kind of notion. And uh, so this lack of internal relations is a problem. And, uh, and I think that that is basically what I have to say about that. And, uh, and I would say that it lends itself well to um, many, many different uh, standpoints, which is liberals could use it very easily without any critique of capitalism. And on the other hand, those who are aware of capitalism sometimes use it in a heuristic form to show how it is done. So in my mind, intersectional, intersectionality is, needs to be activated by an agent from outside. And that agent is a political agent. I don't mean one person, but I mean agency, a political stance towards it. And otherwise, it's simply good for describing a kind of a story or that difference, but it doesn't really do the work of showing how it's actually a concept needing a doer, an activation to set it in motion. So that's my view of it. Yeah, you're setting up my next question perfectly here. Um, speaking to that, uh, class is often seen as another thing one can add on to the other forms of one's identity or place within a constellation of marginalizing and oppressive social dynamics. What's more, liberals, as you say, have often ignored class, while some on the left have adopted a very reductive reading of Marxism that says class is primary and all other forms are pejoratively referred to as identity politics and ought to just be cast aside. But you argue that liberals' prioritization of identity should not lead to Marxists casting it aside, but instead that class should be a made a fundamental part of identity and the politics of identity. Can you explain your own approach? Yeah, and I think that we can do that. I don't know how adequately I can. I would like to write a book on it. But uh, but that aside, it's a very important question because right now um, there's a kind of degree of dismissiveness that is really used with the notion of identity. Now, in my essay in my book called The Passion of Naming, I talk about the need for identity because there is really no political subject agency 
without some name associated with it. Naming is not simply arbitrary and uh, useless, so to speak. People do need an identity. Now, I don't think that working class and proletarian are identity in very, you know, kind of any very uh, strict sense, but yet they do give a kind of a description of a way of being in the world, a location in the world, which I think are very needed in order for any movement to be organized and we can see which direction it's going in. So, um, but therefore, the desire to be named and naming oneself is a very important part of it. When I was teaching uh, as a young woman at York and some of the earliest courses on race, there was a trend among uh, black students, particularly men, to say to me when I asked what their name was, that their name was Ibrahim or Abdullah or what have you, while I was giving the grade to somebody, some, you know, Eric Johnson or some other name like that. And I would say, well, you've got this one name here and you're telling me another, uh, what's going on? And they would often say, well, that's my slave name. My real name is, the one I chose for myself is Ibrahim. Now, what does that mean? It means that there, were, there are people among us who have lost their history, their languages, their religions, everything with which they were identified a long time in another social and setting or culture, from where they were rooted out, forcefully, violently brought, and the other violence was the violence of their names. So these name-taking devices became very important and uh, almost became a banner for proclaiming an anti-racist and historically retrieving project because those who have lost need to retrieve it. So we must make a distinction between that and name people who are in a position to name others as something they can because they're in a position to control and rob them and loot them and plunder them and bring them over as unfree labor and everything. So we know now the N-word, for example, or several other words, the stereotypes, the characteristics, the perils that they're supposedly indicate to us. That too is naming. There is a white identity politics here. No what is called education you know, is actually an elite European set of ideas and, you know, and, and practices and academic and intellectual artistic practices that qualify as being the right kind of knowledge. And those who do not have it are not part of any knowledgeable world. Now, one doesn't have to be a Foucauldian person talking about marginalized knowledges. One you know, without that, one already knows. Foucault was not the first person to tell. Many, many people have told us in the struggle of, for freedom how they have been robbed and how Europe has substituted another name, another project, an European project is an identity project as well.
Today, that centralized identity is so central that we don't even need to name it as identity politics. But is there not an elite European um, capitalist, colonial, slavery-oriented identity that we now advance as normal identity? So I think that uh, that is the important thing, and that's why I feel that uh, that identity politics is more complicated than we are ready to, you know, give credence to. I have a book called um, Writing on the Wall, which has got more literary kinds of things, but also passion of naming. I talk about Sojourner Truth and the fact that she took on the name of Sojourner Truth which was not the slave name given to her. So, you know, this distinction is very important to make the aggressor's self-identity and identification of others and the oppressed retrieval of identity and giving oneself the name that one wants to. So we have to really... Keep that in mind. Now, when we want to talk about class, then, to what extent is class an identity? Now, I don't think class is an identity. I think class in its uh, modern sense uh, is really quite fitted to capitalism. And it develops, I think, 17th century onwards. Before that, in feudalism, I think we have more of a status orientation with strong hierarchic relations and oppression. But class, as we call it now, for me, is part of the social realization process of capital's capital's, uh, mode of uh, production. And the extraction of surplus value uh, is really deeply connected to these social relations and their cultural connotations that come to decide whose work is worth what. And, you know, it's part of the entire realization process. And it doesn't happen only in the site of production. It has to be socially organized as what would be called a mode of production, a historical social formation, which gets all its, um, gives its resources and to how capital is organized. So whereas in, uh, so we can make a distinction therefore between the use of word class made in Marxist sense in which I'm trying to see as an internal relation in capital in the process of exploitation and in Weber stratification, um, which is a kind of social description, hierarchical and so on, and not a socially active notion. And, uh, and I think that this Weberian approach of stratification and hierarchy can also be the source, and I think is, of Foucault's concept of power, uh, the all-aggressive, you know, all-aggrandizing and all-encompassing kind of, uh, all notion of power. When you say what makes power power, neither Foucault and even Weber doesn't have any idea or doesn't tell us what makes stratification, stratification or possible. So I think that, um, that, you know, for Marx, of course, as we know, it's a formative relation 
and uh, and it's only to be found in this particular mode of production called capitalism, which is itself, however, is uneven and articulates within itself very many kinds of uh, modes of production, uh, which people like Samir Amin and others in critical development studies have spoken about. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but in an article I wrote recently and published called Factory and the Family, Spaces of Capital, which is not in this text, but published by Marcello Musto about alternatives with Marx and beyond or something like that, I tried to deal with this question. So I would say that identity is therefore not just a personal question, who am I, but it's a social experience. It's a collective social experience. And it begins from a small point of recognition and reflection in the immediate world. Class as identity, for example, the difference between class in itself and for itself in, uh, in uh, Lukash where, and in Hegel. Uh, it can serve as a kind of an identity marker when you become conscious of yourself as a member of the proletariat. But uh, this identity is the core in its broadest sense of a collective political agency. And economistic Marxism misses the full meaning of class, political subjectivity and agency by trivializing it as mere experience and culture and interprets class simply as a narrow phenomenon of just a limited moment in the process of mode of production and sometimes even as a technology of production. And this is a mistake because it ignores the full understanding of mode of production itself, something I'm working on, you asked what I'm going, doing work on, is really redefining mode of production and see what mileage I can get out of it, how I can introject all these elements into understanding that. And um, so, you know, the struggle is against dualism, the struggle is against a kind of reductive understanding or fragmentary understanding of mode of production. And then, therefore, identity is connected with it in those who experience that, as well as those who uh, extend that oppression to others. Moving along and turning to Marx's theories of ideology, which form much of your own theoretical foundations, it might be worth starting out with Marx's own theoretical starting point, life as it is lived, the various forms of social intercourse and their attendant forms of consciousness. Can you unpack and explain this starting point and the difference it has with political liberalism, which at numerous points in the book you say lacks the proper starting point or the self-reflective methods of inquiry that Marxism has? Um, yeah. Well, all these are very deep questions. Uh, you're asking me world historical questions, about actually. But I'll just make a very simple rendition of it. That it marks, you know, let's say in German ideology, but also in capital, also in Communist Manifesto, also in 1859, uh, Critique of Political Economy or whatever, 
directs us to begin from lives of people, not from ideas to people, people's lives as illustrations of theories, but from people to the ideas and theory. It sounds very simple and very, very you know, commonsensical, but the difficulty of getting people to actually programmatize it and make it into a methodology for research has been very, very difficult to, to actually do. Either it ends up by adding all kinds of phenomenal empirical circumstances and calls it analysis, or it just ignores the lives of people and just treats lives of people as examples of Foucault's theory or Hegel's theory or somebody's theory, bending people to fit that. So I think the more educated people have become in the university as uh, thinkers in the process of intellectual production or producers uh, of ideas, the harder it is for them not to, to see that these ideas, even though some pre-exist, of course, but did not come from just ideas themselves. That is, neither Plato nor Hegel actually becomes our path into this uh, <laughs> critical thinking. So, as you know, Marx says we begin with real lives of people and, uh, and our point of departure is, uh, is a ordinary human existence, and it is the survival, the, the con continuity of this existence from the time of the emergence of, you know, homo sapien, I don't know what to call them, very early stage human, human beings to now. People have not been wiped out, though individually people always die, generation after generation. Wars happen, cataclysmic things happen in nature, but human beings continue. And it is by them and for them that, you know, everything that happens in the world happens. And therefore, uh, to think that uh, Marx has tried, and I think a good book to piece to read it is in my methodology section. I have a few essays where I try to talk about that, that, uh, uh, the complexity of their existence under different socio-historical regimes marks the humanity at what stage, if you don't like stage, at what point of social cognition and development they are. And, uh, and therefore, social, sexual divisions of labor, economic and uh, cultural divisions of labor, etc., make for uh, what enter into the um, theorization that Marx makes in the end about ideology. And, uh, and, they, and particularly with um, manual and mental division of labor, which happens really much later in human history than, let's say, the earlier, even early feudal period, that um, uh, that makes us uh, recognize that human beings and human lives have been the central categories for um, our points of departure for theorization. So I think that um, 
in this uh, in this context, the essays I did on ideology, and the whole book is really guided by this concept of ideology. One has to begin by realizing that Marx makes no separation between conscious and active life practices, and consciousness, and uh, and general ideas that people have in the world. It is absurd to think of unconscious life practices as well as unactive, unproductive physical physical manifestations of practices of consciousness. So where there is consciousness, there is practice. Where there is practice, there is consciousness. But are all consciousness or all practices the same? Uh, and that is where I think that there is a gradation in Marx's work between different types of consciousnesses. One being a practical consciousness that I talk about, and when he talks about language as being the biggest example of that, that if it doesn't make sense to somebody else, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, we didn't invent language by ourselves. But also what we learn about making of houses, doing all sorts of life things, uh, you know, clothes, medicine, etc., etc. These are long accretions and, you know, and rejections and so on of practices that people have done. And practical consciousness may be said to be the basis of what something like Gramsci would have talked about, the organic kind of intelligentsia's work, for example, engineers' work in developing capitalism. So um, that is why I think that um, we have to really think about the fact that practical consciousness is something which has been very underdeveloped in the theorization we have. Somewhere revolutionary consciousness has to do with practical consciousness. The fact that people go and work together, know this meaning of it, and know how the technique of it and so on, feeds into people's sense of identification, if you like, with each other. And at the same time, they do absorb something from above, which is created from above for hegemonic reasons of capitalist production, for example. And these two come into a head-on collision between our in our psyches and collective experiences. And women's movement became very big in this kind of thinking and anti-racial movements is that that what we told we are told we are and who we feel we are create a contradiction with each other. And that becomes the entry point, that fissure, that contradiction becomes the entry point through which a struggle is set in motion, not blueprinted from beginning to end about how it's going to go, but it's still that moment of entrance. So and I would like to give a historical background by saying that until the arrival of the fuller development of capitalism, and it seems almost all historians agree in 17th century um, as the fuller development of capitalism, um, we notice that uh, social consciousness and divisions of labor tend to be less distinctive. For example, religion and state function are very, very 
implicated, let's say, in the in the king's body as being an anointed body, or the church, the canonical laws that also you know take care of our inheritance, cultivation, and tax and rent giving, and everything else, and we say thereby give unto Caesar what Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So this is a kind of, they're inextricably tied with each other. Therefore, priest, kings, canon laws, monarchy, early feudalism, and relative absence of secular and intellectual pursuits, we date it to the days of Renaissance humanism um, in the West. We won't be talking about other parts. So in the case of ideology, I think, um, we have to recognize that intellectual production has become something by itself. That is, it's got itself a kind of a niche of productive uh, enterprise, which is, uh, you know, which is the goal of those of us who are involved in the mental division of labor with our own productive theories, disciplines, and techniques involved with modes of ruling and, and legitimation functions. Education you talk about later, and I would say that this makes education, for example, a branch unto itself, because we no longer connect education unless it's vocational to do work or everyday life and what can be trained. So unconnected to material forms of life, ideology as a form of knowledge is a way of seeing where life and knowledge are at variance with each other. And in this schema, ideology being integrated in the ruling apparatus affects or interpolates people, as Althusser says, within the state of capital and the reproduction of capitalist mode of production and normalizes capital as our only way of life. So I think uh, that's about all I can say. And the first essays in the book uh, actually directly address this. Yeah, moving along, um, you describe ideology as a rupturing epistemology, one that performs several functions of severing knowledge from the context in which it was produced. Ideology then is not simply content that happens to be false, but content that has been dehistoricized, desocialized, and depoliticized. What is this rupturing function that ideology performs? I, I think that, you know, ideology, um, let's see how it ruptures. I don't know if it ruptures, it does, I guess it does, ruptures our practical everyday consciousness and, and introjects within it categorical forms of thinking through very practical processes. If you look at, for example, the uh, bureaucracies of the governments, in these huge capitalist bureaucracies, we need categories in order to enter people into the ruling or distributive social mechanism. There are categories such as single mother. There is category like family violence, there are categories of, uh, well, even women of color. 
and so on. Interestingly, working class is not a category in the middle of all this, but there are there is poverty. Uh, these categories actually are ways of intaking people, as I would say, Althusserian in a way. Here, Althusser is right that the ruling apparatus itself is an ideological apparatus of the state. And through it, people learn to self-name themselves as immigrants, refugees, uh, women of color. You know, I can multiply all these instances. You get the idea that it kind of ruptures our daily perception and experiences of the world that we live in. And, uh, and it makes invisible through other intellectual, for us who are tied up with books and intellect, makes invisible the connection between life and knowledge and gives knowledge an origin solely in the realm of ideas. And to the extent that we are adhered to the kind of ramifications of certain ideas and their logical organization, we are theoretically, you know, right, and we become the great thinkers. Um, we do not want this to be interrupted by experiential forms of thinking that arises from our own recognition of uh, what is going on uh, in our lives and the contradictions that we feel. And there is really nobody that lives in the world that doesn't feel a sense of contradiction, white or black, man or woman, gay or straight, to take some examples, because the organization of the world that we live in is not um, not uh, parallel or it's not unidimensional and unidirectional. It's a three-dimensional world where uh, all these relations enter, these contradictions work like weaving of a piece of cloth, where going vertically and, and uh, horizontally at once, we create this web or piece of fabric, the social fabric. And people do have an experience of this kind, no matter where and what they are, as long as they live in the world, but they have not been taught to respect that as a source of knowledge. You know, this contradiction, this feeling that I am not only who say, others say we are, and here I may be white and, you know, I'm in India equivalent to, let's say, being white. I'm upper caste, upper class female, right? And my whiteness in India manifests itself in a different way, but still has a power relationship with those who are not upper caste and poor and, and female, but of a very low, untouchable or caste organized society. Does that mean that I don't feel any contradiction in my life? I do. I feel it both in being how I'm treated as a woman within a feminist perspective. I feel it also in how I'm taught or have learned how to treat servants in a very different kind of way than I would treat my peers. I may try very hard consciously not to do it. But I know that how to do it if I want to. I, I refuse to do it. And here, 
the top of one society becomes the bottom of another. And I'm not special pleading for myself, but on a street, I have an existence that is actually of just a brown, non-white, small, um, you know, 80-year-old woman. And anyone, but anyone, not only, you know, can, particularly even street people who are white, talk to me in a very, very harsh and negative way because there's one thing they think they have, though they have nothing. They're white and I'm not. So whereas in the university, I have a relative amount of power because I have students that I can actually quite mess up if I want to. I have a limited kind of power, but I do. And on the street, I have none, right? So I have a double existence. And I have an existence in India and here. So when I look at the many dimensions of my existence, then I can really see that ideology makes, tells me, talking about everybody being democratic and, you know, participatory in a democracy. Well, it's, it's a lie. Unless there is, it's just formal democracy. Unless the real social relations are distributive and participatory, a real democracy is possible. We are not actually living very equal lives, no matter even if we are some of us better paid than people who work in a factory. So uh, that is my my uh, claim that uh, this is how the rupture, if you want, I mean, I've called it that at times, is made. And this is how we are pulled into. And if we consciously look at these different levels of being in society, we don't only have to be allies to each other. We can actually look at how certain things affect us. The same thing that makes somebody black makes somebody white. And the white is unenunciated, but the black is enunciated. And so that is really one thing. And uh, and here it's very important to say that there must be an acknowledgement that while some ideas are ideological, which I've been trying to say, others are not. So not all ideas are ideology. That's a mistake that a lot of people make when they say everything is ideological. I don't think everything is ideological. Ideology is a special kind of thing. It can crumble down into daily life through government and other practices, academic educational practices, but it's still not the same as a kind of knowledge that comes from how we live comparing with how we are we told we're told we should live. So um, ideas that generate from everyday interactions and experiences of people do have, as I said, these elements, but they contain much more than their that in their quotidian life. Since any mode of production is a formational complex of multiple differences, and I'm reading directly, and determination, you know, idea of the concrete in the essay that I have on Marx's idea of building from Marx, in their different combinations, these determinations produce different forms of com uh, consciousness. Now, for example, if you look at the essay building from Marx, 
and you look at Grundrisse, which it relies on mostly for its development, any mode of production implies production and consumption, distribution and exchange. Any, I mean, no matter, very old to very current. The latter two, however, developed in highly mediated forms through value repositories such as money and market over a very long period of time. We no longer only produce for what we use. We no longer produce for whoever is near us. But this general production that we do for the market and money as the repository of value in that exchange value becomes really a very high form of mediation until we, it can actually put up a wall between those who produce and those who consume. The same producer will not know when they're consuming that they're consuming products made by somebody else. For example, classrooms. I mean, I look at my classroom. It's filled with plastic product. Now, what is plastic? Beginning with the mining of oil, fossil fuel in you know industries, all the way to the producing of the sludge, to everything else that happens, my world is covered in plastic. But do I, when I come into a classroom, think that I'm surrounded by the labor of other people and everything I have right there really is some some people are present in it? Do I see somebody hiding? in a cube of sugar when I put that sugar in a cup of coffee. What happens then is that the, the distanciation of these forms of mediation actually put up this wall and ideal, it becomes a practical ideology, which Marx talks about in Capital as the foundation, I think, of commodity fetishism. It's not that people are stupid and have false consciousness. It is that the organization is such, the mediation is so extreme that experientially it is never available to us from here to Saudi Arabia, how my piece of plastic is produced. So I think that that's very important to keep in mind. And um, in this formative reality, then, social relations are generated through in which people relate in two different ways. They relate as consumers in the market in a competitive fashion, competitors or sellers of their labor, and a recognition of having to be subordinated to a money society uh, in, in, and uh, poverty and so on, and having to sell their labor to get what they need. And this double-headedness of our existence makes it very important for us to think about uh, this kind of consciousness that can become an active consciousness of ideology. Um, and I can, I think I should expand on it just a little if you let me, or am I done? Uh, if you have if you have one more thing you want to say, otherwise we can move on. Yeah. Okay. Just I just want to say a couple of things, which is that the knowledge function of ideology, as stated before, obscures this connection 
by training us, particularly through intellectuals and education systems. We've talked about that. But also that these different moments of the activities in a mode of production are perceived phenomenologically as self-contained spheres and thereby occlude their formative relations to each other. And I think that is important. That uh, And that is why we can take from Marx again from Grundrisser that we hide the fact that not only is production necessary for consumption, but in itself it's a process of consumption of human energy, capacities or labor, and means of production, nature, and so on. Therefore, consumption is not a self-sufficient act because it is both a motive force and a realization of the objective goal of production. So that is why I want to do that. And I just want to say also that ordinary words, and I, you pointed out very well, such as man, woman, black, and so on, are, um, they, can, they are in their general noun or adjectivized form, like whiteness, blackness, and so on. It's transformed into an ideological category through this process, because it's uh, rather than a connotative and referential term. In the women's movement, this became very important because the word woman, when not adjectivized with which woman, what is this location, this, you know, the idea of grounded theory and so on. Now they've been thrown out a lot and standpoint theory, but they came from the fact that the word woman help to hide rather than reveal what is going on. And in my essay, But Who Speaks for Us, I have an extensive discussion of that. I'm done. Yeah, moving along and continuing on with this, um, you talked a bit about education, which can produce different forms of consciousness or subjectivity either offering up content to passive receptacles who might continue to serve the status quo or revolutionaries who might be capable of questioning and overturning it. How does education function within a particular hegemonic constellation and how might education be used to turn against certain situations? Um, Some of it I've already indicated, right? The hegemonic aspect of education. Uh, Paul Willis, in a book called Learning to Labor, once very popular, did a lot of good work about that, about how practice makes children understand that they have to labor eight hours a day. When you look at grade one, two, three, they still have six to eight hours of classes. They have to raise their hand and take permission for vital physical functions. They have to be quiet and subordinated to authority. And people like Willis and others who have sent their children to school, been in school, know that the education system, even practically without telling us that thou shalt be a laborer and seller of your labor, has actually given us partway education for working within a you know, productive system whether it's bureaucratic or direct production or anything of that kind. So that's one thing, that ideology is really not only that, but the ideology as content. 
um, you know, Foucauldians have told us about it, and I think it's true, that um, why, why do you consider something to be knowledge and something to be not knowledge? That's really a question. Usually the, the gold standard is science. Can you prove it? Is that the, uh, have you an evidence, etc.? But in humanities, uh, you know, philosophy, arts, and liberal arts, and so on, we uh, don't have to have any so-called proof or gold standard. Uh, people are constantly uh, taught through that sort of mode about what is the right way of being in the world. So when women's movement became important, and now with many years of anti-racist work being done by educators, we saw how much of the textbooks or what is readable and not readable becomes important um, when you, the curriculum of anything is decided. And so why is it that books, for example, Boys Are Not Blue, the recent controversy about that book by a black queer writer is, not, is going to be taken out of the syllabus of, of uh, younger people. Um, and uh, other books of this nature uh, are being uh, constantly banned and, and so on is because some books, there are books and books, and some books speak to what the people at the receiving end, the neglected end, the oppressed end, the violated end, when they get enough voice to talk about their experience. And this is where also experience is a source of knowledge. Now, there has been a real problem with sociology, particularly, where knowledge is not connected with experience whatsoever. Experience is seen as very subjective, and uh, and of course, being subjective is not being scientific and objective. And unless somebody decides my work is objective by certain procedures dedicated to production of positivist utilitarian uh, knowledge production, which is actually a simulation of natural science procedures in you know, so sociology and history, my, my, I cannot give any, my knowledge is not valid. So it would appear to me that this objectification, that you can see the world, not from yourself, but some kind of a God's eye view of the universe that comes from major intellectuals and so on, is really something that re changes education into a form of ideology but also counter-ideological, counter-hegemonic in the fact that those who are, there's a struggle, not a daily struggle. You could call it class struggle. It's a cultural class, daily political struggle we are in the heart of. We're never free of it. We're always fighting for, against something and for something. And it's not certainly, I to me, it's not a painful thing. I kind of think we have to take a pleasure in struggle, and I do, uh, to be able to see how actively we can become readers. So education and activity 
as an uh, and edu- knowledge as an active process of knowledge would be a very important thing for us to use as a counter organizational knowledge and you see if we didn't fight we would never have the kind of curriculum these days that we are fighting to retain now because we fought for them in the first place to put them in place you know we did develop black studies women studies queer studies they were not part of our curriculum they were not objective or classical but we have expanded knowledge moves through our struggle so i think it is that and also you know why this is so difficult for people to realize and why marx is so interesting is that the marx of all people saw everyday life uh, common people's life that is buried in the heart of economic activity provision and so on in civil society as the ground for world historical struggle for revolution right i mean he did not invent an ideology separately for class struggle he took our life our daily life as the uh, life source for struggle for for a change and the necessity for that struggle why is not everyday life everybody's experience legitimized why have theorists marxists including neglected experience so much that it really is thrown out as a source for knowledge so i think that um, this uh, education issue has to be broadened into a kind of larger social education and marx really read from the standpoint of everyday life not beginning with the idea and then going to marx from exchange value to marx but from what is going on in our daily life to using marx as a way of understanding it marx did not invent class whatever came to be called class came from what he saw is going on so naming again yeah he did that but that's what i think yeah moving along and switching gears uh turning to another one of your major influences dorothy dorothy smith who you mentioned earlier she gives you the notion of the problematic in which you detect a dual meaning you write quote there can be a wordplay on the notion of problematic as applied in a critical sense of as as applied in a critical sense our everyday world is problematic but also the everyday world is not just a descriptive expression but as itself a sociological problematic in the sense that it presents us a field of investigation comprises a space of inquiry and quote can you unpack this understanding what it means to say that our world is not simply problematic but is a problematic well you know i can unpack it to some extent i think people should go directly to two or three books of dorothy she's been my teacher and she continues to be i learned in some ways how to think in this way that i have by studying with her i wouldn't have actually perhaps i would have eventually stumbled against the notions i did but if i hadn't read everyday world as problematic or if i hadn't read her book the conceptual practices of power 
if I had not read Writing the Social, uh, these three books that I think have been very crucial to my formation, I would not have actually known how to um, valorize knowledge that is produced in the daily course of reading, nor uh, given up um, the search for fitting all reality into the box of theory. You know, we get some theoretical issue and then we take 100 illustrations and try to pack it in. If it doesn't fit, we mutilate it, but we manage to pack it in all the same with arms and legs missing. Now, from her, I really learned that that cannot be done, that you have to really look at what's happening in, in all around you and without a preformed categorical idea, not any old idea, because ideas are not necessarily all ideological, but a sense of something, an idea of something, you actually look at what's happening around you. And with somewhat, she would call a sensitization towards these sorts of, you know, social organizations of power and relations of patriarchy, race, and so on. You just take it as, a, as you see it and try to see what helps you most methodologically to make sense, the broadest sense of the world that you live in. And she herself did that beautifully by really first uh, teaching us, you know, she didn't even have a book at that time. She had articles by teaching us um, something called social organization of knowledge as opposed to Mannheim's sociology of knowledge. You see the difference? They're really different concepts. That knowledge is socially organized, and she didn't take it from Foucault because she also thought that there are different kinds of knowledges, that not all knowledge in the end is coming from you know, some kind of governmentality and power source, but that there are resistant forms of knowledges. And from the standpoint of women, not because we are women, but also because we are standing in the social topography on a very uneven surface. And from there, some things are visible that are not when you're standing somewhere else. Like, you know, who looks and you if you wear a pair of boots and someone looks at your boots from above, they only see the glossy top. They don't see the bottom of the pair of boots coming down on the ground. Now lots of people have, thanks to the police killing and everything else, generationally have seen the underside of these boots of power. And that's a very, very valuable thing that she taught us. And that knowledge, what is even qualified as knowledge, is socially organized. And the society is, after all, the dominant society riding on the back of the general mode of production, uh, capitalism. And so I think that that was one of the things that she really, in that we have to really make a distinction between her reliance on Marx, you know, starting from people their lives. And let's say I told you about Mannheim, but also Max Weber. 
Mannheim's collection with Max Weber of uh, development is from Max Weber. And Max Weber also, therefore, could only talk about stratification, but he didn't have much of an idea of how this stratification is actually an active, productive, and reproductive process. Uh, he just saw them as existing, which it does, and class-like and status-like categories were articulated into making some sort of an interpretation of class by many people and then being used right now. So that is something that she taught us. The other um, contribution she made to my life and many others' life of thought is institutional ethnography. Now, you know, anthropologists do ethnography of people, societies, you know, sociology looks at the larger framework and the relations and grosser things. Anthropology directly goes to people and does daily life and culture, this and that and the other. But how can an institution have an ethnography? She brought that through the mediation of um, work of Garfinkel and, uh, and others about institutions as being a set of practices and that these practices are categorically determined, that large societies like societies of capitalism, something I was telling you earlier, are uh, actually standardized societies. And this standardization is not the wickedness of any particular person, but societies of scale, but and capitalist societies in particular, do need a level playing field. And this level playing field and administrative field and active activity field is really organized through categorical deployments and concatenation in institutions. So we studied with her something called the ideological circle, might interest you. If you go, if a researcher goes to a woman that lives on welfare or, or you know and not one woman but quite a lot and says to them um, you know what's your experience and how, how do you feel and so on she will often mostly self-define herself as single mother as a domestic victim of domestic violence and various other categories that she knows about, and we'll discuss that with her. You go to the social worker, they're told, and but and mental hospitals too, to use categories such as uh, schizophrenia, psychosis, um, you know, various categories of mental illness, and immediately produce a construct or a reality through this category, they will be served. So the experiences these people are having are experiences through these categories. The collection of the researchers' so-called data, somewhat interpreted, will go to the policymakers, and they will read them and interpret them in the same way. And they will be fed into various other legal apparatuses 
legislations will come about, and one more time, the cycle will go on producing the same categorical recycling that goes on. And that is really very important to keep in mind that uh, this is where some of the divisions arise between what we actually live and how we are forced to be categorized in order to receive something that is ours through the various bureaucracies and branches of the state. It's not because those people are bad people, but institutions are categorical functioning bodies. And she taught that beautifully, and she has a book called um, uh, Institutional Ethnography and Sociology for People. And I think it would be interesting for people to read. Yeah, moving along, you give a story of the 20th century where Marxism and critical theory have found themselves split and fragmented into several different spheres of inquiry. Where some Marxists have turned to simply studying economics, many liberals have emphasized ideas about personal identity which, without much, if any, mention of economics at all. The result has been an emphasis on exploring personal experience as the alpha and omega of critical sociological inquiry. Can you explain this development and the sort of politics engendered by such a strong emphasis on personal experience? Mm. Yeah, let's see what I have. I I might actually say that uh, this throws me back a little bit into your earlier notion of the problematic. Uh, How does personal experience or collective personal experience body of personal experience offer us a problematic, which is a conventional way, as you explained, of organizing a field of research for, for general socio-historical economic life of society from them into, a, into an academic discipline. So fields of research have to be designed with a focus and a goal because we don't research in general, but in particular. But we use it to say something about society at large. So it becomes a window into what the components of a society are, how people live in it, how they experience it. So this kind of thinking, which we find also in the work of Alfred Schutz and George Herbert Mead and others, Uh, actually brings you to the question of personal experience as a very important one. Because I cannot personally experience something which is not generally experienceable. You know, if I grew up in the tropics, as I did, I did not experience the Arctic or the snow. There are things that are thinkable or now transmissible through films and various other things that are really possible somewhere and not possible in other places. Some experiences wouldn't, for God's sake, happen if the social organization, the history, the material form of life wasn't there within which it could arise. For example, one of my surprises 
in uh, Canada was um, someone calling me an F-word Paki, effing Paki. Now, I didn't even know what Paki meant at that stage because it's a word that had traveled from England to Canada, which meant Pakistani, but not really. It meant a certain kind of pejorative way of terming people from coming from my part of the world. And I got spat upon, thrown things at, Things were really hard. There were not that many non-white people in the city in those days. And I asked myself, how is this possible? These people don't really know me at all. And uh, I know nothing about them. I'm standing by a, in the subway station or beside a bus, in a bus line uh, queue. Why would somebody get so angry with me and say these things to me and make me frightened? Why would I be scared after that when I got into the bus to ask the driver if he can uh, let me off at a certain stop? Because by now, I'm like terrorized into that kind of a situation, right? Now, that made me think a lot. And, uh, and I thought that uh, this personal experience which is local, immediate, cannot just take place if there wasn't anything behind it historically. It took me at least 10 years of reading about world history and colonialism and particularly Canada to get the sense of where all this was coming from. That just me, poor old one, me on the street had an experience because... I didn't even know what it was an experience of, except feeling violated. I couldn't name it. I couldn't say it's a racist experience because I didn't come from a country where race was a dominant category. I came from a casteist country, right? I hadn't gone through it. So I learned to name these things and experience of one person, as I said, doesn't happen without the historical, social, and material ground being ready for it. And we embody in ourselves, historically, all kinds of things that Marx talks about when he talks about the story of Robinson Crusoe, the myth of being alone on an island, when Crusoe, in his own personality, brought in, in his techniques and technique, how to really build a house, how to make, you know, stairs, how to cook food, etc., etc., and including how to have a slave, right? So is that Crusoe's personal experience not also the history of the world history's experience too? But we can actually mess up majorly if we stop only at the door of the house. If experience is our entry point, right, then what is what lies behind it? We use an experience. I have this uh, technique I have used in my essays, particularly in earlier phase, for example, in the essays from Dark Side of the Nation, where I collage a story, an event that happened to me, and the rest of the essay is about explaining how it got to be like that, right? So then... I had to say to myself that um, how 
how did I know where I was coming when I was coming? How did I know what kind of impact could be interpreted? How? I knew people would do bad things to each other, but I didn't know it was patriarchy or racism. I mean, I didn't grow. I grew up with a lot of criticism of Marx and Engels, yes, of uh, through the um, you know, family, private property and the state, but that the personal relationship between me and my partner would be one of patriarchy. So feminist theory and other forms of historical, critical, methodological knowledge I acquired bit by bit allowed me to see that stopping at just that event wouldn't help. I could just go from it and elaborate a kind of description of the mapping of the city of and how white people and not white people uh, approach each other and are treated. Uh, or I could go further than that and go to the social organization history and uh, political economy as a whole to, to be um, cognizant of where my experience can take me. So experience um, taken in a shallow version of phenomenology might actually be a problem for us. But in a more profound sense, the notion of experience can actually be a very of great help. And um, so I just end up this section by saying that um, that uh, experience is not possible if no one, except with an alive and existing person who could experience whatever is surrounding them. You know, they're not in the void because it is somebody's. And if it doesn't mean something to somebody, then it doesn't mean anything for anybody. Now, I end up by saying it would be absurd to talk to, to talk people of people without society equally as much as society without people. The entire enterprise of analyzing and understanding would be inconceivable without there being actual human beings to experience something. And there's no need to change anything if experience doesn't matter. If I didn't care what happened to me and if I, you know, I wasn't even there to experience it, why do we need to change and get rid of racism and sexist racism in my case and ageism and so on at the present time. So I think that's basically what I have to say. Does that make sense? So as you've been alluding to, you don't think that personal experience or narrative is useful or, or useless, uh, I should say, for critical inquiry about society and even bring up elements of your own personal narrative at certain points in the book. But you do it in a way that encourages contextualizing, historicizing, politicizing, pushing against all the ways in which ideology tries to rupture and split our knowledge up. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what the use is in personal reflection on personal identity as a form of ideological critique and demystification? Um, as I said, if you only stop at the event itself, 
and a very shallow understanding of it uh, without decontextualizing it historically and so on. You put it better than I did. And, uh, and I think that that would be kind of fragmentary and it would create islands without connection among people. But if we were ready to jump into the society, the history of the social organization, the social moment we are in, in any country under any circumstances, and track our way back in time to see why such an experience could be possible, then I think we could get a lot of political uh, political activism, activism out of it, but alongside with it, a depth of critical understanding, because nothing could be what it is without its formativeness. Things form, and personalities form, identities form, and they are not solipsistic. The minute a person comes into the world, the person enters into the social. You know, doctors, midwives, mothers, whatever. But you are not anymore just only introvertively engaged with yourself. Yourself and the other are mutually creative. And one should not therefore say that what is you are getting from the other will be exactly the same as the other, but actually could be a response. Yes and no, positive or negative response, but even the social is, after all, negative response also as much as positive response, right? I mean, the social is never only good thing, like having a good time and a party. Labor-capital relationship, as Marx would say, is a social relation, but it's one of um, antagonism. So I would say that taking uh, experience um, into that level and tracking it back into situating it in historical materialism, I suppose, is the methodological word that I should have used, but I, I follow, uh, really allows me to get something out of that experience that leaves me included, but brings in many other things. So that's all I would have to say, and that this would actually free me from having to do a subject-object dualism, right? We would not enter this kind of a, a dualistic thing of seeing us and the world in separation because the social is an interactive, activating, saturating concept. And there would be, therefore, if we didn't think of the social experiential subject person, there would be neither questioners, nor answers, nor uh, any action possible. Why would we act if we, you know, why would we ask a question? So the problem is in this dualism, which I think is an ideological way of thinking, and uh, trying to understand experience and existence as being connected. And therefore, not reproducing the Cartesian dichotomy between mind, body, or the material world, or the Kantian form 
of a substantive subject and the object in itself, the thing in itself. So the the cogito that I think cogito uh, has in order to see itself as ergo sum, some of it all has to be an experiencing cogito. Otherwise, we'll not get it there if we wanted to. So that's it. Yeah, moving along and tying together a number of the threads you've been developing um, against the uh, reductionistic forms of Marxism uh, that we discussed a bit earlier, you argue that capitalism cannot ever be understood in a purely abstracted economic form. Instead, you write, quote, the actual realization process of capital cannot be outside a given social and cultural form or mode. There is no capital that is a universal abstraction. Capital is always a practice, a determinate set of social relations, and a cultural one at that. Thus, race, gender, and patriarchy are inseparable from class, as any social organization rests on intersubjective relations of bodies and minds marked with socially constructed difference on the terrain of private property and capital, end quote. Can you explain what Marxists miss when they ignore cultural forms as fundamental to capitalism's functioning uh, and instead see it as a purely epiphenomenal illusion that needs to be circumvented? Yeah, Stephen, it's, uh, I've been saying that more or less all along in the sense that uh, it depends on what you mean by culture, no? Uh, if you mean by culture simply fine arts and elite culture and so on, that too is very relevant and a love of beauty is very innate to people, I think. Um, you know, when Marx was asked, why do we read Aeschylus still? Why do we read, look at Greek drama or an old art? Uh, he said, well, because uh, there's something in us that loves beauty. And creativity, beauty, imagination, and the fact that he says also that something created in the childhood of civilization continues to attract us. I agree with him, but I think that that childhood of civilization of Aeschylus's uh, Orestian trilogy is not over. Because a figure like Clytemnestra in Aeschylus becomes meaningful to us because Clytemnestra follows the law of a matrilineal society and as a mother of a child that her husband kills, Ephigenia, in order to sail to Troy to get Helen back, she actually follows the law of her time. But this law of her time indicates matrilineal. But when her son Orestes kills her, and the god and they are pursued by the Furies in order to punish him, he takes refuge in the altar of Apollo. And there the Furies can't get him, so they circle around him. And then comes the need to create a patriarchal, patrilineal law, which has to be voted upon. And 
so-called, you know, democratic means of voting appears for the first time in the Aeschylean tragedy. And there they get, uh, they find that gods are equally, you know, divided. If they kill, uh, you know, Orestes' crime of killing his mother, uh, they think is not a crime. But Agamemnon's crime of killing his daughter is a crime. And Clytemnestra is not a criminal because she's avenging her daughter. But now we need a law where Orestes becomes free and the death of Clytemnestra doesn't really matter. And on that law, there's one vote. They're equal. One extra vote will cut the tie. And Zeus invents out of his forehead. Athena, not a woman born, fully armed from head to toe, who casts her vote with the men. So there we have an extremely interesting example of how art and culture, for example, no matter how far away and how far ago, uh, retain some things that is actually intelligible to us. We no longer think in these kinds of Athenian terms, and we do punish killing of mother and killing of father, but there's a way of looking at it in that where maybe even our understanding of violence against women is somewhat uh, tarnished or influenced by that kind of thinking. What is the normal about a woman's life with her, you know, partner? Um, where is the line drawn where somebody would say he's been violent? And uh, what all these things, you know, really they continue from before to now. And culture is very much an art of showing us, giving us an entry into expressiveness and organization of an entire society. Culture that way is the principle of intelligibility because in various ways, culture is linguistic, not just written language, but practical culture, uh, artistic culture, technological culture, and it makes it in, you know, intelligible, communicative, transmissible. But if we fetishize only certain kinds of activities and kind of call them our tradition and make a kind of civilizational essential arguments, saying Europeans are civilizationally rational, Africans are not, then we're using culture in a dehistoricized frame and as a useless kind of form for showing how culture is a social form and a social phenomenon, as similarly society itself is a cultural form. And it's not uniform. In the same world, there are people at different locations of society who actually are uh, culturally against each other, who maintain simultaneously certain practices that could actually be antagonistic with the practices of others. So if we didn't want to get into a really a bad base and superstructure argument, 
and didn't want to talk about false consciousness and mere culture and that kind of thing would be in great trouble. But equally, if culturalist people did not notice that economy in the marketist world that we live in is really the heart of our physical existence, that no one can be sexual and make love and do things unless their bodies are developed and nutrition is given. Right? I work in India. I work with a lot of poverty. And there are people sleeping, six people, 10 people to a room, alternating in a room. How does sexuality happen in that world? Where is the well? Where is the space? Where is the body? Where is the nutrition? Where is the joy of life with which people can be sexual under these circumstances? So if we as, I am from literature, and to me that part is very important, but I still think that if that's where we want to stay, then we are, uh, and talk about mere economy, and not talk about people in the U.S. right now or everywhere in the world dying of lack of health care, you know, housing, food, uh, all sorts of provisions that it's needed in order to be human. You know, how talk about mere economy? Economy in its old use used to mean allocation of resources. People used to talk about household economy. Right? They used to have, I read a book when I was in my English department called Economy of Charity. And, you know, it's an 18th century Sunday school book. Now, all these kinds of moralities that are involved in economy, the fact that people like Adam Smith and others are moral philosophers, should bring us, make us aware of the fact that neither culture nor economy been anything, uh, if they're reified except a destructive thing politically, a dead-end kind of a situation, if we can't interweave them and give them a kind of activation of life through social movements and political organization. Moving along and turning to the nature of history, and I mean here history with a big capital H, you look at James Mill's early 19th century book, The History of India, which you argue doesn't teach us much about India, but it does teach us a lot about the ideological function of academic research. Of particular interest is the way Mill views himself as being in a particularly privileged position to write on the topic, congratulating himself for a lack of familiarity with the text produced by indigenous Indians or with their own language, instead relying on other accounts. Shockingly, he claims this critical distance allows him to maintain a lack of bias in his account, something that scholars of India cannot have due to their interest in the region, to say nothing of indigenous people's ability to write their own history or participate in it. What is Mill unwittingly teaching us here? Stephen, he's not unwitting, he's very witting. And he's teaching us something double-edged because he's fighting not just Indians. He's actually fighting uh, the merchant company 
uh, East India Company administrators. Uh, what, I mean, other than the fact that this phenomenon has been very beautifully discussed uh, by Edward Said in his book on Orientalism, as well as, uh, you know, uh, various other texts that he produced at that time helped me to understand the opaque oil crisis. Um, but going away from there, Orientalism and Orientalism, or racist discourses discussed by David Theo Goldberg in a very substantial text on discourse as a very useful book. Uh, we can talk about also the fact that colonialism is not the same colonialism everywhere. Even though it is done at the behest of expansion of capital, because it, if it doesn't move, then it dies, its eternal expansiveness uh, is uh, very, you know, it's, it's very apparent in its need for colonies. But not all colonies were treated the same way. Not all colonial rule received the same kind of education. So in India, before the British came, there was actually at least 3,000 years of tradition of writing. Not by everybody, very much tightly uh, held by the top caste, the Brahmin, Brahmins, and maybe two or three middle castes by the time we come to 18th century. But written literature and elite written literature, influenced by old Indian, you know, pre-Islamic to post-Perso-Arabian presence, and I don't call it Indian, uh, Islamic, what I see in India from 12th or 13th century on is an influence of a regional nature, Perso-Arabic. So Perso-Arabic mixing with the Indic languages and practices of Northwest India, really. India is a huge country. Um, created a kind of whole mystique of the Orient, right? Uh, during the 16th century, England, they talked of the realm of Prester John. Uh, there was a real uh, desire to perhaps fight the Moors because they, the Crusades and all that, because they once lived in Europe and called, you know ruled it for 500 years. But also at the same time, there was a lot of respect towards these civilizational uh, histories like Middle East and what we call West Asia. We, from India, we call it West Asia and South Asia and so on. So when the East India Company comes to rule, at its head comes a great scholar uh, whose name is William Jones. And I have an essay in that book called Writing, Doing Ideology and Writing India or something like that on Jones and then the one on Mill. And they're opposite, they're bookends, but they're opposites of each other. Uh, Jones knew Persian and he wrote a Persian grammar. He was trained in Cambridge and so on. He was a humanist scholar. And the whole gang of them that came with them, people call names like Harold Hyman Wilson, uh, Colebrook, these were great scholars who wanted to rule India uh, through Indian laws, believe it or not. They got themselves 12 
Maulanas, Islamic think, you know, scholars, and poor pundits, Sanskritist Hindu scholars, and got them to write uh, some kind of compendium through which to rule India. They only kept up on themselves the right to squeeze revenue out of India, loot essentially, but they let Indian laws be the laws for ruling India. In those days, they learned Indian languages. There's still a college in London called Halebury, which was founded then in 18th century, where British administrators learned Bengali, Tamil, Hindi, and so on in order to come. Indians were not supposed to learn English. It's much been forgotten that people do not do that, didn't do that then. So the Orientalism of the Orientalists were challenged, was challenged by the Whig free enterprise government of the 1820s who wanted to put an end to East India Company. And they did. They brought, they are the, James Mill and his son, John Stuart, were Whiggish in their persuasion, utilitarian in their philosophy, and, uh, and certainly anti-democratic in their understanding of India as a colony. So here we have a situation where then we see that a construct is created in each case. For the Orientalists, it, India becomes equal to some texts, and the Germans follow it through people like Max Müller, who never went to India, but became a great scholar of Sanskrit, and it's true he was. But he constructed an India, and the Orientalists thought of it as a ruling category. Similarly, the Stuart Mills and James Mill, these people are also constructed in India, which was not missionary either, though there was a strong Methodist influence, but it wasn't so, so strong. It was very utilitarian and a believer in free trade, whereas East India Company was a monopolistic thing like Hudson's Bay Company, Merchant's Capital. Um, they were the, the British government, the one following Orientalism. Uh, they were actually directly uh, utilitarian and they did want to teach some English. And, uh, and though local people wanted to learn English more than the government wanted to teach them. That's another story that is not told that Indians paid money personally, private sector, to bring missionaries and scholars and others and tradesmen like Cobbler, someone called David Hare, to start English schools in Calcutta, which is a British city wholly. And in order to take part in the rule, they didn't want to be left out of the rule they wanted to be the ruling class. They were not populists. They didn't want to be like peasants or anything. They wanted to be equal to the English in doing free trade and doing, you know, ruling and learning English in order to do that. So here then we have a very weird situation. And in fact, what has stuck with us in modern times is both. So 
one of it is the inferiority of the colonized people, not humanity. And the other is the Orientalism of it, seeing all Muslims as believing in Parda, all Hindus as being caste believers, communism as being something <coughs> alien to the mentality of third, you know, Indians, contrary to all the history that we know from those parts of the world. A thriving communist movement was in the in West Asia, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia. Yet, if you really go by the description of the Orientalist construct, they're incapable of that kind of thing. They'll only think of Hinduism, Brahminism, caste, uh, tradition, hate, modernity, and so on. And on the other hand, if you go by what the stereotypes are about Africa, the language of savagery will be the language that they will use at that time. And they'll never talk about African empires, about Benin, or whatever that uh, Bernal talked about in Black Athena, right? A book like that. Or that Picasso learned some of his best modernist forms by looking at masks coming from Senegal and Sierra Leone. So I think that this is the thing that this guy who spat at me, when he didn't know me, he knew something. He didn't know me, I didn't know him, but he knew the stereotypes, he knew the constructs. He lived as much in that history into which I was then inducted. So I would say that that to me is how ideology works. It makes countries dehistoricize, societies asocialized and apoliticized, and in the end, people end up by making them into a state of mind, not a place in history. You know, and that's how it. I think it works. Continuing along with similar themes, one way Mill and other Orientalists often approach cultures that are foreign to them is to impose certain ideals onto them. These communities are considered to be ancient and contain a mysterious depth to them oftentimes. So aside from connecting with young men in college such as myself when I was going through a new age phase, what is the political or ideological function of imposing this mysteriousness on foreign cultures and societies? Well, you know, this, the much-used word, the other, the creation of the other, who is somehow dangerous, exotic, uh, the terrorist, uh, you know, that sort of creation of constructs happen. And it legitimizes something like war in Iraq. The reason why these people give themselves kudos for going in to democratize everybody, America's self-declared role as world teacher of democracy, uh, has only led to a huge loss of life, you know, livelihoods, landscape, property, etc. A destruction, a wasteland in so many parts of the world in the last 2001 on. 
the after effects of it are reverberating in our world and in their world by millions of people displaced, refugees and so on. And here we sit at a distance and it puts an anodyne kind of a touch to our not connecting, right? Many people do. In spite of it all, majority of people will decry the destruction of peoples all over the world. But the fact is, there's still a patina of meaning or loss of meaning in lives of other people, the others, because they, quote-unquote, don't feel like what we feel like. I am not you, and you are not me. You and I are not we together under these circumstances. And yet we know that we work together, we think together. There are different aspects of life and relations, social relations, on which our comprehension and our politics is built. So this is really the thing that it works as a kind of a hegemonic umbrella and actually very quickly wipes out um, all the kind of similarities that we can identify with each other in terms of life, needs, uh, love of beauty, you know, humanity as it were. And uh, the word human is either meaningless when spoken in this kind of white discourse, or it becomes limited to only post-colonial world, to only Europe as human, and others are not. But at the same time, there are, both in non-European and European countries, people who are able to see how history operates, society operates, and give a content to the world, word human, that is actually something, a, a set of capacities and desires that we share with each other. So in old age, I think I'm becoming something of a humanist, not minus struggle, but struggling towards a kind of a revolutionary humanism. Moving along uh, and continuing with the questionable use of concepts such as community or tradition, you point out that some indigenous people often use these terms on themselves for their own anti-colonial political purposes as a way of pushing against modernities imposed by imperialism. However, this ends up vindicating the marginalization of certain groups within that community, often women, but also often LGBTQ folks or followers of some other religion. How does this anti-colonialism end up erasing tensions within societies, thus vindicating injustice against its own members? Yes, well, that's again a million-dollar question, just as... Patriotism seduces people into thinking that the poor whites and rich whites have the same interest. Just as whiteness as a prerogative or a privilege does that among white people, so among diasporic people like us, being Hindus together, being Muslims together could serve that purpose. 
or even blackness could serve that purpose if that notion of being black was really uh, phenotypical and color-typical kind of language. Now, with the rise of indigenous politics in North America, for the first time after a long time, you know, when I came here, Leonard Peltier went to prison a little after that. He's still in prison now. People are begging uh, Biden to release him. He's close to my age. And there was, a, you know, American Indian movement, AIM, and other movements at that time when Black Power and other movements were happening. But for a while, there was a big lull and there was a kind of bureaucratization and so on of the indigenous politics that happened. But now, again, a new force has come into it. And I would say that this new force um, is a very complicated phenomenon. Uh, it may have a nostalgia for the future, in the sense that this nostalgia for the past is becoming the past we would like to have now and in the future. And the idea being that the past was one of equalist nature. Past was not racist, sexist, unequal, and democratic. Now, whether or not that is true or not is one, one issue. So I'll make two distinctions about this, that, that it depends on... Um, what kind of, in the end, anti-colonialism can become directly nationalism and which has its own pitfalls or perils, as Fanon talks about. But he doesn't negate nationalism. It's still a bigger concept than a group or an individual's interest and life being held together. So I would say that for these people, they may be inventing this something or maybe it is true that before the idea of private property was introduced in the North American sphere, and I'm sure it's true, that it really made was a very different kind of society. I don't know what exactly their relationships were between tribes, whether wars were prevalent or not, whether there was any kind of private property whether agricultural tribes were different from hunters and gatherers. These are things for me to learn still. But I could say that if the tradition, let's say in books by people like uh, Andrea Smith or um, uh, the, uh, Leanne Betosumakis Simpson, and others is that that it was a past of equality. This is what we strive to. I would think that these are progressive myths of history. Making history in order to create an equalist society, a socialist society of some kind, does not at all militate against socialism of any kind. What would we have against it if we were to say, this tradition of being equal, having potlatch, sharing food, is our tradition. That's where we want to go back. That being two-spirited, 
was acceptable and even normalized, what would we have against that? Nothing. So let us say that it is even a myth of history, creative design to make history and what I call following Ernesto Cardinal nostalgia for the future, the past that we had, the unfallen primordial past. Maybe the unfallen past will take us to a less divisive society. So I have, pro I have that much I can accept. What I cannot accept is that there's also a very retrogressive views of this sorts of notion, which I can best speak to about my religion, Hinduism, which is Hindu right being in power in India, completely uh, using the name of God to oppress Muslims and other social groups, and uh, creating a culture of violence of all kinds, social, sexual, economic violence. Um, I cannot accept all this in the name of tradition. I cannot say that caste is my tradition, that the greatest knowledge in the world is nothing compared to the ancient Indian texts of the Vedas written in 3rd century millennial BC. This is not true and this is not good. And this does promote horrifically uh, patriarchy, violent sexism, uh, masculinism, and, uh, and class caste domination and creation of the other. If they didn't exist, they would have to be invented. Just as the Jews were created by you know, Nazis, they were not Jews as Jews are or were in Europe, but a construct to be destroyed. Similarly, Muslims in India are undergoing that. So that in the name of tradition, rejecting science in the name of tradition, rejecting socialism in the name of tradition, this really creates an extremely problematic thing. And my article in that book called Making in India Hindu and Male, for example, in the book that you read so carefully, um, talks about that and talks about the contradiction between a demographic state and a democratic state. You see, that's what the problem is. When you say that the demography of a state must be a unidimensional, unilocal demography, then you are really talking a massive anti-democracy, in fact, a fascist proposal. And what is very curious, you see, is that, that this religious ideology um, that is used in order to create unification of patriots as Hindus and Hindus as patriots, then creates a problem of constant minoritization proliferating in those parts, wherever it is being used. And I think race is something like that, that we've already, the fact that American uh, not just the Trump-following uh, population, but even others, would think in terms of what is really American history and, and stand in the way of teaching history of U.S. 
as it is and has been on the ground, comes from the same kind of impulse. And there's a large quota of Christianity in it. You know, what is uh, Christian um, evangelism, I guess, forms a large segment of it. What is curious, or not so curious, about India, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, US, all these countries is that it's really very easily bonded to neoliberalism. The fact that people have any right to ask back from the state what they gave to the state is wiped out. They're left to their own resources and to the resources of God. They are left to their own community, which is actually making massive class formation happening through the identification with the corporates, for example, and creating terrible inequality, injustice in those countries is really something that uh, we should pay, be mindful because under the cover of all this patriotism and, you know, demonization of people as savages, terrorists, and so on and so forth, and in the case of India, Muslims as basically terrorists and also unintellectual, anti-intellectual, masculinist, prone to many marriages and sexually overactive, all those sorts of images actually, which are present in Canadian and American Islamophobia as well, really then becomes a very destructive thing for us. So when we talk about uh, anti-colonialism, we must actually expand that notion to not just being anti the foreign force alone, but actually internal to the country, what are the social relations, economic and cultural relations. And we can't bury it in the name of civilization and tradition. That's about it. Yeah, you're speaking to the final question I have for you. So in closing, when reading your essay in this book, Pygmalion Nation, I noticed it was published in 2000, so shortly before the September 11 attacks and the retaliatory invasions of the Middle East, which were often justified by pointing towards the oppression of women and LGBT folks. This is obviously a cynical use and abuse of justice to justify imperial domination, uh, but it does raise a difficult problem of how to speak against imperialism without surrendering those still stuck in such situations. So in closing, what sort of politics is needed to fight for international emancipation of all peoples that neither falls for the nostalgia of some organic community or imperial invasion disguised as emancipation? Hmm. Well, you know, Though I'm not born a Christian, I could tell you that the devil quotes the scripture. The devil is as familiar with the scripture as all believing Christians are. So I would say that talking about uh, 
being good to queer people, being good to women in third world countries, damning all the population, culture and civilization there is a very, very convenient slate of hand, right? Bush's war against Afghanistan, we used to call it a Bush's feminist war because his wife, Laura Bush and Sherry Blair together became a big, big strong force and drew Gloria Steinem and others in and they went to rescue the woman, which the Brits thought that they were doing too in relation to India, rescuing the brown woman, as Gayatri Spivak put it in Can the Subaltern Speak, from brown men. So the our recourse is to such, you know, rescuers, ours, uh, you know, they, they bring our salvation. But just as that is a problem, uh, it is also a justification given to people at large through the kind of ideological devices we have so far talked about that I've spoken about in my book to justify attacking, let us say, Iraq. If you remember in the, after the first Gulf War, uh, that terrible grandmother, Madeleine Albright, was asked whether or not it was really worthwhile to kill so many children and destroy a country like that, in a, you know, to, to save it up for democracy. Was it worthwhile? She said on consideration, yes, it was. Similarly, Afghanistan... You see now, they nearly never cared for Iraqis, Syrians, Afghans, nobody. Some, some other bigger imperial agenda was taking place. So if we are going to fight these attempts of, well, not attempts, fully realized um, uh, advent, adventures of destruction in the world, we have to demythicize and and unveil the kind of social historical struggle that these things help to cover up. And on the other hand, in the countries themselves, we should also unveil what the social and class formations have been there. History has not stood still because some stereotypical thinkers think in colonial discourse these places are outside of history. They're not, you know. I mean, Iran, for example, before the coming of the, you know, Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution, had a thriving communist left-wing culture. And so that is, a, that is something that we have to think about as well. And we must sympathize if we want to this social solidarity to the social political movements in those parts of the world, not to a kind of a civilization and a cultural block. India, for example, recently had a massive year-long struggle of farmers against Modi to push back uh, corporate agricultural policies and selling of land and agricultural land to uh, foreign vertical reorganized corporations from the West. 
and they actually struggled and pushed Modi back from being able to put the bill, uh, carry this bill, and they made it, it became an act, and they unrolled the act back. Now, we have to sympathize with them. We have to have a better direct knowledge of who's doing what politics in our parts, my part of the world, or I would say our in the sense of the third world parts of the world. And there we will find as much division of opinion, as much division of, you know, of interests, of class, of race and gender or caste, and you know who to sympathize with. Just whoever you will sympathize with in your own world, you will in those parts of the world. So our anti-imperialism will only gain by supporting their anti-imperialism. Otherwise, if we just sort of say, well, all right, I take India under my wing and anything, my country, good or bad, my mother, drunk or sober, if that is the politics we adopt, then we are falling into a total ideological vision of the world. Not what is going on, not what is actually happening, but what is actually a fabrication in the course of legitimacy establishment. So my invitation to my left comrades, you know, to you and all others, is that you find out more, force the media to give more news about what's going on in different parts of the world, and uh, get rid of this missionary impulse by people of color and white people, let's say from Canada and US, to go and rescue people in other parts of the world. They don't need rescuing, they need solidarity. And on that, I'll end. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. So we're at just a little over two hours. So I want to just say, Imani Banerjee, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on and talking with me. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the trouble of doing this. It's actually a privilege to be able to talk to someone like you who read, who understood, and asked me very good questions. Um, without standing in my way, but at the same time prompting me to speak. So I really want to thank you. I don't think I've ever gotten this opportunity. So thank you for that. My pleasure.